Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Censored. I'm Aoife Vrutnach. And I'm Lloyd Maeve Houston. And I have no idea what Lloyd is going to tell me about. I am I am a lamb to the slaughter. Jesus. <laughs> That's an unfortunate kind of... Yeah, I was, I was going to say we're doing an episode about the North and we're straight in with the kind of sacrificial violence and bloodshed. <laughs> that was not intentional. That was entirely unconscious. <laughs> No, the damage is done now. I'm sorry. <laughs> Gonna have to partition the podcast. <laughs> so what are you going to talk about then? Go on, give us a hint. Yeah, I mean, essentially, this is, as sort of adumbrated last time, this is the, the kind of corresponding episode in our sort of informal two-parter on censorship and its relationship to politics, or at least to the sort of evolving political settlement on the island and the kind of different forms that censorship takes when you have the island partitioned basically there was not time enough and there would not be time enough in a single episode to cover what censorship uh, and its relationship with politics becomes in the north of ireland uh, in the you know um, any time after about 1968 so this is just the sort of you know 20s 30s um, into the the yeah 20s and 30s, basically. We we could do another one about, you know, troubles, troubles. I mean... Yeah, I, I, I imagine we will return to this topic. This is certainly something we could come back to. But yeah, as the kind of initial table setting, basically, we'll talk about what the kind of legal situation is. Um, we'll then talk about what the kind of cinema landscape is. And then we'll look at a couple of examples, one of which um, I suppose is uh, if we are on schedule with the release of this will be suitably sort of spooky for for near Halloween. Ooh, are we talking about satanic panics? And no, that's the 1960s and 70s, isn't it? <laughs> without without reifying any stereotypes, when when isn't something in the north of Ireland tinged with a shade of satanic panic? You know, the Satan is, is uh, yeah a kind of a presence <laughs> in the in the mindset. He has a lot of walk on parts. In fairness, yeah, the snares of the devil are all around, and particularly yeah in the in the picture house. I, I suppose I'll add a caveat here. I will be fairly freely just for the sake of my own sanity toggling between referring to the north the six counties ulster and northern ireland i'll try to use northern ireland specifically when i'm referring to the kind of legal entity and um, more than you know the kind of geographical mm. terrain ulster i guess i'll mostly be invoking kind of as a sort of imagined community that the kind of northern irish state is trying to sort of perpetuate or something that exists particularly maybe in the mindset of the protestant community because obviously confusingly ulster the actual province historically is nine counties but ulster as it is understood by northern ireland and popularly you know especially in british media is six counties so we're really sorry anyone if this is new to you yeah if you're not from ireland this is just i mean it's like a censored province you know it's got three excised bonus spicy border counties <laughs> um. 
Wow, that that's an image. It goes without saying that, yeah, the, the language used to denote the part of the country that I'm from is is never not politically in, inflected. Um, but anyway, so with that proviso in place, the legal regime that sort of determines how censorship operates is basically built on the foundation of the 1909 Cinematograph Act, which required local authorities to license cinemas, principally initially in the interest of public safety. Um, film stock in this period is highly flammable and is passing over these, you know, what are usually limelights, which is just like a chunk of lime with like a gas jet on it. Naked flame. Yeah. If the film is flowing, you know, at 24 frames a second, it's not going to be in contact with that heat long enough for that to pose a problem. But... If there's a jam, as there frequently were, then the whole thing goes up and is all but impossible to put out, which when you think that penny cinemas were in, you know, small like converted shop fronts and stuff like small rooms, usually with a single entrance and exit, usually with the projector by the door. So if you oh want to get out of the room, God. you have to run past the thing that is on fire and spewing toxic um, kind of fumes. So... Essentially, this initially prompts it, you know, a kind of push to just make cinema safe. But baked into some of the language is this proviso that local authorities can kind of set the conditions for licensing, which can and does come to encompass a set of expectations around, you know, the moral content of cinema and so on. In response to this sort of feeling that some kind of state regulation of cinema might be coming down the pipeline, um, cinema renters and the kind of film industry in britain move to institute a regime of self-regulation to try and kind of head that off and that's where we get what comes to be called the british board of film censors and eventually the british board of film classification as it now is the bbfc the home office are happy to give it the nod because it means that they can make the claim that censorship of films isn't political. So you can claim that there isn't really censorship. It's industry regulation. So it's not a free speech issue. Yeah. So it kind of suits all involved. But essentially, what that means is that the BBFC become the body to whom you submit a film for cuts. They will make whatever cuts they're going to make and they will license it under or, or classify it with either a U label, which is, you know, the one we're all familiar with, universal, can be shown to anyone, or an A, which is for adults, which confusingly, and it does cause confusion, <laughs> covers, it means that a film should only be screened to people over the age of 16 or anyone under the age of 16 has to be accompanied by an adult eventually oh, so children can see it as long as they have adults with them yeah 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 and then the kind of added special sauce that the north of ireland brings to the table is the civil authorities uh parentheses special powers act northern ireland 1922 yeah popularly known as the special powers act or um evocatively as the flogging act which gives you some <laughs> sense of the the what the flogging act which sounds like a text that would be banned by a censorship body. Absolutely would be. Yeah. Yes, they did ban the history of flogging. Very famous book. It, it feels incongruous to be laughing this much about something so monstrous. It's a suite of extremely authoritarian emergency powers accorded to the Stormont government, um, which permitted the Home Affairs Minister to enact any regulation he saw fit um, to preserve law and order in the, the province. Did they flog people? Well, one of one of the things that um, it permits is that, as is often the way with emergency powers, it's introduced on a notionally sort of temporary basis, subject to annual review. So from 1922 um, until 1928, it is reviewed annually. Then in 1928, it's passed for five years, um, up to 1933. And then in 1933, they're like, ah, Jesus, getting together to debate this thing <laughs> every every five years is not sick. Ah, it's just, let's just make it permanent. <laughs> so Northern Ireland, you know, legally remains in a state of emergency or, you know, the, the, the old state of exception until 1973, when um, it is repealed to be replaced by a functionally indistinguishable act as part of, um, it's, it's because of the dissolution of the Stormont government and Northern Ireland comes under direct rule from Westminster. So in terms of the things it came to sort of encompass, um, we have 
good old internment without warrant or trial indefinitely. That is most intensive in the early years of the state. So between 1922 and 1924, about 700 people are interned under these measures, mostly on a ship called the HMS Argenta. On a ship, a prison ship. I mean, you know, it wouldn't be like the British state to hold people on boats, you know, as a as a kind of exorbitant performative measure of punitive cruelty. Never happened. Uh, there are curfew measures that um, are, are permitted under this. Um, there are sweeping powers to ban meetings, parades and marches and restrictions on the flying of flags. So between 1922 and 1950, about 100 meetings and marches are banned. Um, it won't surprise you to learn that... Um, while a few are sort of caught by, you know, kind of universal bans on parades and marches, no loyalist march is ever explicitly banned. It's it's only ever kind of nationalist, republican or occasionally communist sort of gatherings that are targeted. The uh, Home Affairs Minister has the power to forbid inquests if they are deemed a risk to public order. So, oh, no. Yeah, if, if knowing who who did someone in might reflect poorly on the state or some of its some of its members just can't yeah i didn't know about that particular one that is a hundred percent insanely authoritarian let's let's just i mean look at what's a little bit of state sanctioned murder between friends you know just a bit of extrajudicial slaughter sure that's grand (laughs) crikey and most saliently for our purposes, um, the power to ban or censor press coverage, publications, audiovisual recordings. So between 1922 and 1972, I think about 140 publications are kind of banned outright. And I'm not sure quite what the figures run to on and kind of, you know, film and, and so on. Violation of these emergency regulations were punishable by up to a year in prison with hard labor um, or in quite a few instances, whipping, which is where the, the flagellation um, comes in. <laughs> Like they have abolished whipping in the army and the navy, yeah, which were traditionally the places where you could be guaranteed rum, sodomy, and the lash, right? <laughs> exactly. Now, admittedly, the uh, people serving in colonial branches of the army who are not white are indeed flogged for much longer. There's so many echoes with military stuff, though, because the Mutiny Act which is the thing that runs the British army, is an annually renewable act because it's temporary. And technically, the British state doesn't have a standing army. We just, you know, annually spend money on it every year for <laughs> we just many, We just many enjoy years. it so much that, you know, the lads keep getting back together. <laughs> just love a bit of dress up. <laughs> Well, I mean, they do. Let's be honest. That is really one of the main reasons there is an army. But yeah, no, I mean, it's hard not to sound slightly um, kind of exorbitant in the rhetoric I'm using to describe this. But the North of Ireland is an extremely militarized state, um, you know, kind of from from the get go. Um, any violations of this are adjudicated in um, closed courts uh, without juries. <laughs> so yeah, so summary jurisdiction, obviously. Obviously. And even after the act is repealed, you then have the diplock courts for, you know, trying people uh, again without juries. I mean, the South does have the special criminal court. So it's not like we are unfamiliar with the concept of we don't need juries for some people. <laughs> no, 100%. Um, it's, a, it's a national pastime. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those cross-border moments, you know, that would be sweet if it wasn't awful. Yeah, Jesus Christ. <laughs> We're going to be hung, drawn and quartered for this. Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> uh, yeah, I look forward to being liberally fact-checked. But uh, yeah, so, I mean, as you might imagine, the enforcement of the most sort of oppressive elements of this fluctuate depending on the sort of political temperature um, in the North. So it's most um, sort of extreme in the sort of 22 to 24 period things settled down a bit in 1925 they re-intensified during the ira border campaigns of the 1950s and obviously from the onset of you know the the troubles most commonly referred to as the troubles it's particularly intensive um, up to the dissolution of the the stormont government as i say principally used to target nationalist and republican kind of communities and activities and the the catholic minority um though it is used to target left-wing and communist groups and publications so there is this you know kind of another cross-border pastime is to really fret about the presence of a communist fifth column that doesn't exist right yeah. just godless 
godless communism <laughs> clearly just waiting to overthrow um, the state red scares yeah, yeah. <laughs> in contrast to the free state which as we've seen centers the power to regulate cinema largely in the hands of a single national censor um censorship in northern ireland was thus the product of a kind of somewhat convoluted system of interlocking regulation that involved a a British non-governmental regulatory body, the BBFC, which provided approved cuts of films for distribution to cinemas who were in turn operating under B, licensing conditions set by local authorities, which often had their own bodies for banning and cutting films, um, the most influential of which is um, the Belfast Corporation's Complete Police Committee, about whom we'll hear a bit more later, and C, a national set of regulations established by the Minister for Home Affairs, who from 1921 to 1943 is one dude, by the way. Sir Richard Dawson Bates, who is part of, you know, he's great mates with Craig. Um, you know, he helps organise Ulster Day and the signing of the the the, the Solomon League Covenant, sets up the UVF. Uh, you know, so a man with the, <laughs> with the concerns of the whole uh, population clearly to the forefront of his mind. <laughs> and a broad-minded man, I'm sure. Oh, well. God, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Great crack. Uh, who's operating under the aegis of the Special Powers Act, which, as we've seen, gives him pretty... As we know, is gives him the right to do anything he ever wants, yeah, the... really, at any time. <laughs> do what thou wilt. As Champ Barber notes in her sort of study of the, the hyper-localism that sometimes characterises the North's approach to censorship, points out this was sort of envisaged by Stormont at least as a sort of trickle-down system so decisions taken in the major urban centers which had the sort of resources to closely scrutinize the cinema would then set the template for rural authorities who would follow suit in practice the results are way more kind of idiosyncratic than that <laughs> mostly actually oh, good yeah <laughs> we love it what a surprise often actually to be honest more in ways where rural authorities will just take what the bbfc says as kind of wrote and you know they won't bother deferring to whatever is you know kind of animating belfast in, in a given moment but you also get you know things like the the decisions of a local authority like Newry, which is you know a kind of catholic majority city close to the border are going to differ in in sort of you know temperament to those taken by you know more kind of staunchly evangelically protestant you know kind of urban jurisdictions and so on so that may sound like it's a you know a challenging environment for which in in which a cinema might flourish but you know by the 1930s uh, particularly you know as in the rest of the uk cinema has become this you know the kind of dominant form of popular entertainment it is vastly popular the picture house on royal avenue in belfast hosts the first commercial screening of a talkie al jolson's the singing fool in 1929 and is expanded to become the province's first 3,000-seater super cinema uh, the following year when it's acquired by Paramount. 3,000 people! Yeah, and I'm assuming that's a single auditorium, which seems madness. <laughs> yeah. I mean, how big is the screen? I just... <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah, it's, you know, so... Not without reason, Reverend Hunter of the Irish Evangelical Church can be found complaining in 1935. Belfast has gone kinema mad and craving for this thing is like the craving for alcohol. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, again, temp temperance campaigns and, you know, vice policing go go hand in hand. Um, but yeah, by 1936, there's about uh, 100 permanent cinemas in the six counties. And as john hill note in what what is you know to some extent the sort of the book on cinema in northern ireland not least because it's called that <laughs> justice catholicism in the south could be seen to be demanding the censorship of films in order to preserve the moral purity of the irish nation so popular protestantism in the north fought for increased regulation of the cinema and censorship in order to preserve what it regarded as the special moral and political character of the northern state um, and as he points out this can lead to a sort of paradoxical situation where strident unionists are kind of pushing back against the moral climate of britain in order to preserve some like higher species of true britishness <laughs> so because everybody on the island of ireland is special well North yeah i mean the exceptionalism is is rife although again sham barber offers a certain degree of qualification here sort of saying that Yes, this accounts for some elements of this, but that kind of 
increased regulation never really took on a coherent singular form right so it does vary you know place to place and protestantism isn't necessarily the always the kind of determinant at a particular moment but yeah so what what this results in is a a kind of climate in which as the belfast newsletter put it commenting on a um a 1930 tourist film entitled ulster the garden of eden which already kind of tells you everything you need to know about the way that ulster is framing itself in this period that's that's a some bold claim yeah there. right <laughs> um, we are but does that mean everybody's naked <laughs> I I somehow imagine not. I mean, as a famous as a famous mural, I can't remember quite where in Belfast puts it. Um, you know, no topless bathing. Ulster has suffered enough. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, according to this, uh, you know, sort of Belfast newsletter commentator, based on this film's presentation of it, Ulster was only ever to be shown as a place where nothing stronger than curds and whey was ever sold in hotel bars on Sunday, where the youth of the country motored miles for simple Bible instruction at Antrim, and where turf sportsmen and Sunday golfers tumbled over each other in a mad scramble to be early and often at church. <laughs> I mean, wow. Yeah, but but yeah, so I mean, we see that kind of you know, Protestant push to regulate cinema coming through in things like, in again, in a classic move, um, moral panic about a piece of legislation that it doesn't actually affect the North. So the, the 1932 Sunday Entertainment Act, um, which, as it suggests, permitted um, limited film screenings on Sundays, um, wasn't going to be extended to the North of Ireland or wasn't, it co- you know, didn't cover it. Um, nevertheless, a lot of church groups get very animated about this. Mm. And, you know, the desire to preserve the sort of Ulster Sunday um, becomes uh, a big kind of clarion cry. Uh, there's also efforts to, like, prevent the building of new cinemas near places of worship, which um, are fairly successful throughout the sort of 1930s. How? I'm sorry, but there are a lot of places of worship in Northern Ireland. Like I was going to say, ev- every... Like, put it this way, I grew up in a town that is like a small town that had maybe i'm gonna say conservatively six churches of different denominations <laughs> like if you can't have a cinema near any of them where is left in the town to put your cinema apart from some field out the back <laughs> yeah so you know there there is that kind of push to hold cinema you know at a literal arm's length and, you know, you even get people at like the general side out of the Church of Ireland sort of being like it, the situation across the border is preferable. You know, it's it's one of the rare things that people in the north are quite vocally like, no, 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 the, the south have have the right approach to this. The most concerted sort of manifestation of this is the Film Committee of the Churches in Northern Ireland, which is established in 1930. Unsurprisingly, the churches in question are all Protestant. Uh, we... we Weirdly, the Catholic Church, I mean, you know, obviously they're not exactly liberal and permissive, but they're, I think maybe they have bigger things to worry about (laughs) than cinema. They don't do plural either, churches, no. It's just the church. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. 
That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Sorry. But, yeah, so they come to the Belfast Corporation with a set of recommendations, including things like, you know, banning all children under 16 from films and stuff, and or films with an A certificate, I think. Um, and partly to kind of mollify them, they are given... Uh, free entry to Belfast cinemas and granted permission to liaise with the police committee who would investigate any film that they deem unsuitable. And they pursue this with all the zeal you would expect. <laughs> so to eventually, after a lot of a lot of runway being laid, uh, to get to our first <laughs> film, the first film that they recommend for scrutiny in this manner is Universal Pictures' 1931 adaptation of Frankenstein, which... You know, if you think about, like, the stereotypical Frankenstein, you know, bolts through the neck, big, blunt, you know, top of his head, lumbering gait, groaning, etc. Like, it, you know, it's alive! It's alive! The, the thing that proves certainly most concerning to the people of, of the north of Ireland when they are confronted with this film or when the prospect of the film emerges is the kind of grave robbing and the you know arrogating unto himself the power of god in making life that frankenstein you know undertakes and to be fair to our panicked nordies the those things are heavily stressed like the film is all in on that so you know it opens on a funeral that is like kind of gleefully being observed by fritz who is the figure that we always misremember as being called Igor. Um, but, you know, the kind of, like, hunchback, you know, sort of assistant. Um, Frankenstein, he and Frankenstein are watching this sort of burial. And the instant the earth is kind of set over this body, they're straight in, digging him up. And there are various different points, you know, where Frankenstein very much declares himself to, like, you know, now I know what it is to be God. So they stress this pretty heavily. Although, also, to be fair to the film, they have... In, in clearly a move that's meant to anticipate the problem, they have one of the characters, like Frankenstein's sort of mentor figure, come out before the film begins to be like, here's the summary of the plot. Like, Vic, you know, Frankenstein believes him, you know, he arrogantly assumes the power of a god and is punished. <laughs> like, explicitly says, this is a, a parable about playing god and why that's bad. So they don't even leave it to the interpretation of the audience. They're like, this is why we are telling you this. It's a morality tale. Yeah. Pay attention. I mean, it's it, it's a little more playful than that. There's a kind of sense of like, we hope you don't find it too spooky. <laughs> I, I'd never seen it before criminally, but like parts of it do, I think, really do hold up. Like they're, they're, it gets stronger as it goes along. But by the time Frankenstein, like himself, gets thrown from the windmill and lands on its blade in another pretty... <laughs> Kind of, yeah. It's, it's, I mean, you know, the dummy's pretty dummy, but it's, yeah. Also, oh, like Fritz gets hanged. The monster, um, like, hangs Fritz by chain, and we see him sort of, you know, dangling there. It strangles the Dr. Voldman, the kind of mentor figure. So, you know, it's pretty, it's pretty gruesome. It doesn't certainly pull its punches where, you know, threat and violence are concerned. But, yeah, it's ultimately passed in the US and and Britain where uh you know it, it does it is controversial with church and morality groups the BBFC insist on 300 feet or roughly 7 minutes of cuts and kind of unfortunately we will never see the full film as it was made because those cuts were made to the negative so the version of Frankenstein we have is already a sort of censored one but it's passed with an A rating so you know children under 16 accompanied by an adult adults can go see it interestingly it's passed in the south of ireland over the objections of montgomery so he he's like this will cause the mentally vulnerable to go crazy <laughs> is basically his fear <laughs> but the appeals board are like nah, it's, it's fine um so it's passed with cuts there um but yeah the film committee of the churches of northern ireland clearly ready and raring for this film to come out they formally object to it on the day it's first screened in Belfast. Um, so on the 19th of April 1932, they're straight in there. Um, the police committee arrange a special screening of the film the following day and ban it on the grounds that it was blasphemous and unedifying. However, the situation is complicated when Universal Pictures appeal the ban because only five members of the police committee attended the screening and only three voted in favour of the ban. 
So that, combined with press criticism, prompts the police committee to arrange a second screening to which it invites members of the Belfast City Council, the Northern Ireland House of Commons and Senate, um, and then follow it with a full kind of council debate um, after the screening. The most vocal opponent of the ban um, is a member of the Northern Ireland Labour Party. But uh, in the end, um, after an hour and a half's debate with apparently a sort of packed public gallery, um, the supporters of the ban carry the day by a small majority. So, you know, there's lots of people kind of waxing lyrical about the, you know, the the immorality of vitalizing a corpse and the effects that the black art of the monster's creation might have on the immature brain and so on. Um, I mean, okay. (laughs) Well, what's really funny about this, again, with my, you know, kind of my special interest hat on, like the film is made with this kind of quite Lombrosian, like degenerationist sense of like, you know, there being kind of degenerate minds that are dangerous. So the reason that the monster is is prone to violence potentially is because there's a there's a point where you know they've 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 assembled the body but they need a brain and dr waldman is giving this you know lecture on cerebration and you know he has these two brains in jars and he's like a normal brain um the most perfect specimen that i have ever seen in you know in this university and the abnormal brain of the criminal you know list degenerate and underdeveloped mind and so so you know our, no, our does fritz take the wrong one? Fritz, fritz no 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 it's even better than that fritz goes in and he, he fair fair play to him he goes for the the normal brain he goes for the good specimen but then there's like a kind of noise off that shocks him and he drops it <laughs> and then he picks up the other brain is like shit, 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 and scampers off <laughs> so yeah the monster winds up with with bad brain and you know but also, like, everyone just keeps waving flaming brands in its face and chaining it up. And, like, you know, I, I wouldn't be terribly well disposed to <laughs> people doing this to me. <laughs> but, yeah, so, you know, a, a film that is clearly concerned with the idea that, like, there are, you know, neurological predispositions toward crime that can be actualized by, you know, sort of bad nurture, you know, begets this moral panic about the effect that this film will have on the kind of vulnerable minds. But back to the kind of hyper-localism thing, that's the case in Belfast. But in Lisburn, the picture house there runs three screenings a day of the film to packed houses. (laughs) So, you know, just get on a train. Um, (laughs) Go down the road, day out. Yeah, you're you're fine. You can you can see it. You know, it, the thing is a huge financial success for Universal. Um, also, students at Queen's University mock the decision as part of their sort of Rag Week celebrations. Um, so they parade a replica of Frankenstein's monster through Belfast and then drop it from a crane into the lagoon. <laughs> Go away, that's brilliant. <laughs> um, to the strains of the funeral march being played by the Pro Tanto Quid Band, spelt B-A-N-N-E-D. <laughs> which is it's, it's a bit it's a bit sweaty but i i appreciate it lads yeah so very good so that's frankenstein in 1932 so that's that's you know our kind of evangelical protestant anxiety about you know things ungodly unsurprisingly the other thing um, in this period that provokes real issues are films that depict the troubles i.e the you know the war of independence 1920s yeah troubles. the the well the the sequence of political unrest that is initiated by the easter rising and culminates in the war of independence mm-hmm. into the civil war and this is a concern and even outside of ireland the bbfc liaises with the mpp da to pre-vet films depicting the troubles uh, okay. so they so the, the the main film i'm going to be talking about is um, a movie that in the in britain and Ireland is called Ourselves Alone, but in America is called Rivers of Unrest. I'm not sure where the rivers come from. There's no, nothing terribly fluvial about the film, but you know, <laughs> I it's it rhymes though, so it sounds yeah. Good. You know, the, the the alliteration is nice and present. I mean, I suppose you know, I, I do understand that obviously there's going to be segments of a population uh, particularly an american population won't know what the referent of ourselves alone is but yeah interesting naming choice but this film so it's kind of made and pre-vetted with input from the vbfc to ensure that it's not too politically contentious but even with that 
it goes on to be politically contentious. So to be fair, I actually, I was really gripped by it. This this one is, is it's worth a watch. I think it's a really interesting example of like British cinema in this sort of period. Um, it's again adapted from a play and seemed to be, well, it was well-liked in some circles. So it was voted the seventh best British film of 1936 by The Examiner um, and The Irish Times sort of, in an article on the films of the year were like, you know, if there were a bet on for this, you know, I would take a flutter on ourselves alone. So the, you know, it play, plays well, admittedly, in the Irish Times, which is not necessarily, you know, uniformly reflective of opinion in the South, but... But Graham Greene doesn't like it. Um, so he, he's the film reviewer for the for the Spectator, and he says that it's the silliest thing he's ever seen, <laughs> the, the, the silliest thing that a British you know production house has ever made. Silly. <clears throat> That's an unusual criticism. Well, you you'll potentially see where he's coming from. It's a film that very interestingly combines what feels like a real push for authenticity in terms of observation of like details of uniform and like the classification of the different aspects of the british army that are involved and so on but that has quite a silly kind of plot in terms of like who turns out to be who and 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 whatnot as as concisely as i can summarize it it opens with uh, an an irish republican attack on a military british military convoy that's transporting prisoners so there's two fellas from higher-ups from dublin who are being held and um, they're being transported in a lorry driven by Private Parsley, who becomes a kind of recurring common relief. Yeah, Private Parsley, are a recurring comic relief figure who, you know, a bit like um, Gunner, who gets, you know, massacred in the plane in A Yank Joins the Aria. Yeah, we've got another kind of cockney who's like, oh, blimey, governor! <laughs> um, who's perpetually just kind of, uh, you know, concerned with um, how people are mistreating the various vehicles he has to drive. Anyway... He is left, you know, they launch this sort of surprise attack that's meant to lure as many of the British guards away from the vehicle as possible so that the real attack can happen. We then kind of follow the aftermath of this through the eyes of John Hanney, who's the county inspector for the RIC, um, in a rather fetching RIC uniform, like very, you know, cut cut to the waist, back to the pretty, you know, pretty pretty boys in uniform. Um, Phrases I never thought I would hear. Fetching RIC uniform. They they look, they the man has a good frame and they they really it's very cinched. <laughs> he is snatched, he is you know it's it's a look. Good. So he is liaising with a British intelligence, like army intelligence kind of officer who promises him intel um, from an informer that'll help, you know, kind of crack this. Well, you know, he basically says, like, I have information coming about, you know, a meeting that's taking place tonight that will allow you to get get your prisoners back and round up all the kind of leadership of this and finally get that, that Mick O'Day fella. And is, is this actually Michael Collins, do you think? A mysterious figure who's called Mick. Mick. Yeah, it's, yeah, there's, you know, one of the, one of the commandants is Commandant Connolly. You know, it's, yeah, it's kind of playing with this stuff. Although you'll be interested who the Collins figure turns out to be to some extent. Basically, um, in the midst of, sanctioning that operation or that raid the ric county inspector guy is like also can someone go check on my fiance she's um, you know maureen um up in the big house um so she's oh, you know no. anglo-irish <laughs> anglo-irish woman which means english woman she she is just there's no attempt here made at an irish accent whatever which to be honest i'm i'm glad of compared to some of the irish accents that you hear in some of the other films i watched for this <laughs> but um you know so she's just very much waiting for her her fiance it's also clear that like there's a lot of chemistry b- between her and this british intelligence guy you know oh i see a little bit of flirting on the side yeah he he kind of puts puts the moves on her we're we're basically primed to see the ric guys a bit like short-tempered but you know he'll come good in the end of course and he after this encounter maureen then catches her brother going out in you know dressed up in a trench coat looking kind of mysterious he, it, it's notionally meant to be a night fishing trip oh in attempting to slip some yeah in attempting to slip some cake into his pocket again extremely english man Ter- Terence uh, Elliot or whatever his name is, uh, you know, d- deeply English guy. But um, in attempting to slip some cake into his pocket, she finds a, re- you know, she finds she feels a revolver in there, and she's like, oh, you know, are you are you messing around with those Republican? Meanwhile, there's also a 
quite significant conversation where the uh, a new recruit to the RIC asks the intelligence officer guy, like, oh, you know, can you give me some tips on how to survive this old guerrilla war thing that we've got going on? And and he's... <laughs> what a question! <laughs> um, yeah, he's, like, implausibly kind of naive, but it's meant to, you know, kind of engineer a bit of, uh, a bit of sympathy for him. So, yeah, so this implausibly naive and kind of, you know, very butter wouldn't melt in his mouth English guy asks for advice and he's told, you know, shoot first and ask questions afterwards. Trust no one. Don't talk. And remember, never take your hand off your gun. Sinn Féin, you know what that means? Ourselves alone. They're all watching you, whispering and spying, murdering and informing. Sinn Féin, that ought to be our motto, not theirs. We're the ones who are really alone. So, you know, it, it's... Wow. It go, yeah, in places it goes pretty hard in its, you know, kind of... We're the real victims of, <laughs> of colonial rule in Ireland. But to be fair, you do also have moments like earlier in the film that, you know, there's a whole fucking pub scene with lots of lots of singing, um, women hiding guns down their garters, um, the singer kind of taking up a collection of all the guns because the British are coming and putting them all in the, uh, the beer keg and stuff. <laughs> you know, so... There is airtime given to nationalist sentiment. Anyway, sorry, this is there's a lot of plot. And eventually, <laughs> to try and cut a long story short, Mick O'Day is found. And you'll never guess who Mick O'Day turns out to be. Is it the brother of the big house girl? Yeah, it's, it's our extremely English Terry. Um, he turns out to be big man Mick O'Day and who has like tried to exercise, you know, a sort of a, a sense of fair play and caution in the trying of this informant who says, you know, I'm not going to just execute a man on, on report. You know, we need to you know, see that justice is done here. So basically, the more English you sound, the more sound you are in the logic of this film. Yeah, the fairer you are as an insurgent if you have a cut glass English accent. Yeah, the thick Dublin accent people, they're all just like, ah, sure, kill anyone, organise a big, you know, you know what the best way to take out army convoys is? Do it in town where you'll hit as many civilians as possible. And, you know, um, Terry is like, no, I, one, one couldn't possibly, you know, as, as long as we're in my territory, we'll, we'll conduct ambushes as I determine them. Gala. <laughs> 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 but when he when he is captured this is a bit of a head fuck yeah you see what, you see you see where graham green's coming from with some of the kind of like this film is quite silly <laughs> so he is detained and he and john hanny you know this this local county inspector of the ric who is betrothed to his sister they have this conversation which again to be fair to the film is genuinely pretty balanced in terms of you know each of them calling out the other for their recourse to exorbitant violence and sort of saying, well, you know, but it's justified, but you know, it's justified by our cause or whatever. And then, you know, the, the county inspector guy is like, you know, why, why are we all so seized with hate? And Terry in impeccable English accent, you know, received pronunciation is like, no, I'm, I am motivated by love. I love Ireland and I love all that she could be. And, <laughs> You know, I sometimes I feel sorry for you, John. And he's like, I'm as Irish as you are. And he's like, yes, but you do not, you know, you you act against Ireland. Feel the love. Yeah. So, you know, to, to be fair, through the admittedly kind of sanitized mouthpiece of this very English, Anglo, Anglo-Irish person, we get, you know, this this sense that, uh, you know, that, that there is a respect, at least a kind of moral version of nationalism that could be envisaged or something but we also get someone in the r you know in the ric saying i'm as irish as you are you know so it it's when it needs to be it's fairly nuanced but anyway in the midst of this conversation um terry jumps out a window and runs away <laughs> so o'day is you know making a break for it um the army intelligence officer picks up shoulders a rifle and is like i'll get him when he's in the, the searchlight pops him but at the same time your man, the county inspector guy, is at the window with a pistol that we know is jammed, but also kind of points it. So, basically, by the end of this thing, when all said and done, Maureen learns that her the, the fella she actually fancies has murdered her brother, who she finds out is actually O'Day. Um, the county inspector guy sees that they are clearly made for each other and does the kind of honourable thing of simultaneously asking her to break the engagement and taking responsibility for shooting the brother 
Yeah, and wow, self-sacrificial, very noble. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm turning through pages of notes. Like, There's so much fucking plot. So yeah, his kind of subaltern says to him, you know, men are aren't killed by guns that are jammed, County. You're a damned fine man, John Henny. And, you know, and, and the film concludes with our, you know, now kind of redeemed um, sort of guy saying to camera, you've seen a miracle in Ireland, two people out of three who are going to be happy and, you know, look sort of somewhat plangently and stoically off into the distance. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> two people out of three happy is a miracle. You know, from a kind of like Irish studies standpoint or like cultural representations of Ireland, obviously, while there is lip service paid to like, oh, you know, there's there's valour being shown on both sides. Fundamentally, the film is like, Ireland is a turbulent and ungovernable place in which like everyone is on the make. The only decent people are basically English. So, you know, the best you can hope for is a situation in which two out of three people are happy about something. And, uh, you know, preferably the story ends happily if the IRA men are shot, really. That's... Well, to be fair, they actually, they, they seem to make a getaway. We don't. We don't see what what oh, happens. The two then. Dublin lads. Yeah, it's it's the it's the honourable Mick O'Day who is tragically sort of sacrificed. It's the hardliners who you can imagine going off to you know start the civil war. I guess if we follow yes. the sort of analogy yeah, here, yeah, yeah. they get off scot free. Things are redeemed by a union emerging between a British Army intelligence officer and this you know Anglo Irish woman being sanctioned by an RIC man who has like reconciled the conflicting elements of his duty. So, you know, the whole thing is ultimately pretty uncomplicatedly kind of unionist in outlook, let's say, or premised upon, you know, the sort of the triumph of a set of like British noble virtues. But notwithstanding all of that nuance and exorbitant plot, <laughs> you know notwithstanding all of this sort of pro-union-y sort of stuff right um the film pays enough lip service to d just the existence of trouble at all and that there might be any right i suppose on the kind of nationalist side of the equation that notwithstanding the bbfc passing it the film becomes uh, a real source of sort of trouble um in or a concern in the north a sense of like the kind of controversy that atta atta like attaches to the film, we can kind of capture in the intervention of a unionist MP, William Grant, in the Northern Ireland House of Commons, um, where in speaking on the need for maintaining law and order in Northern Ireland, um, he reported that he'd attended a private screening of the film that morning um, and said, I do not wish to be taken as an alarmist or anything of that kind, which, you know, says every alarm. But. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm of the opinion that if that picture is shown in Belfast next week, it may tend to create trouble in the city. I know that the Belfast Corporation is the local authority responsible for dealing with the matter, but at the same time, I think some steps should be taken by the Ministry of Home Affairs in conjunction with the local authority. Um, they should attend a private view of this picture before it is exhibited in the public next week. If they are satisfied that the picture would not tend to create a disturbance in the city of Belfast, I am perfectly satisfied. I do not want to suggest for a moment there is anything wrong, but I do feel that this picture is purely Sinn Féin propaganda and some action should be taken. I'm not saying it's problematic, but it's fucking awful. I, it's just purely Sinn Féin propaganda, and if you show it, uh, there will be a riot. <laughs> um, so we, you know... The, this suggestion is followed. There's a screening attended by people like Dawson Bates, the Inspector General of the RUC, um, the Belfast City Commissioner, various kind of members of the Home Office, and it's banned. Uh, you know, and, and that's kind of under the the emergency powers. Oh, so that's different to the Belfast Police Committee. This is the Home Office. This is the Minister in Stormont banning it. Yes. Okay, yeah, sorry. It's just kind of outright prohibited, which actually then kind of leads to a bit of sort of pushback or at least queries from the Home Office sort of being like, well, the BBFC, we're fine with this. Like, what's the what's the issue? And, and you know, Dawson Bates is kind of like, no, like, the situation here is different. And it's always the situation up north, isn't it? Yeah, it's always the situation. <laughs> Uh, situation i just wanted you to say that thank you for humoring yeah me. <laughs> you hear this listeners <laughs> is this nor debating i think it's so. sort of bear baiting that goes on 
<laughs> and this sets in motion a sort of pattern where a succession of similar films, um, including uh, John Ford's The Informer in 1935, or, which isn't screened until, or isn't it attempted to be screened until sort of 36, um, and also his adaptation of The Plow and the Stars, which is kind of talk about a butchering of a, a source text, like it's mad. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's also the paradox to all this that obviously would any of these films been as contra- controversial as they proved to be had the state not drawn attention to them in this manner who's to say yeah if people don't know and aren't primed to expect that their feelings will be hurt then maybe they won't take offense are people less likely to riot about something if they haven't been told that they might riot you know (laughs) That's another cross-border moment, though, you know, given out in the cinema and rioting and... And objecting to the plot in the stars as well, right? Like, there's something very, very funny about a play that was rioted about because it was too anti-nationalist, then being (laughs) kind of rioted about for for being too nationalist when it's screened in the North (laughs) of Ireland. Um, Having just said, you know, oh, what a... (laughs) How awful that that British film suggested that this island is ungovernably kind of complicated and self-contradictory, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, but it's different when we say it. Yeah, exactly. It's like, yeah, it's, it's like your family, right? Like, you know, you can criticise your family. No one else can criticise your family, you know? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so here, here endeth, at least for now, a rather exorbitant kind of... <laughs> cinema and censorship in the in the north of ireland yeah so thank you for following any of that if it was indeed followable no i did learn a lot i learned that there's a flogging act and i'm kind of blown away by the extent of the emergency power yeah wow that's that's some level of emergency (laughs) yeah yeah, you know, look, if if you take nothing else away from this, listeners, just learn that any extrajudicial legislative measures kind of enacted under the insignia emergency, usually bad. <laughs> and temporary, almost never temporary. <laughs> As Walter Benjamin tells us, you know, the state of exception isn't exceptional, it's, it's the norm and... <laughs> It's how the state works. Jeez, sorry, I've I've gone I've come I've gone full like kind of you know guerrilla anarchist this episode. Anyway, <laughs> look forward to my next the next episode being recorded from my bunker. <laughs> deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.